Welcome back to Down to Mars and happy Black History Month. Black History Month is a time for paying tribute and celebrating generations of African Americans and just celebrating Blackness in general. Throughout the month, you can find frequent posts paying tributes to Black inventors on our Instagram pages for Jet Constellations and Down to Mars, so be sure to check that out. On that same note, our shooting star of the day features Jerry Lawson. Born in New York City on December 1st, 1940, Gerald Anderson Lawson is famous for being a video game pioneer, helping develop the first cartridge-based home video game console system. Inspired as a child by the work of George Washington Carver, Jerry Lawson dabbled a lot in electronics growing up. As a youth, Jerry was already what some would call an incurable tech head and tinkerer, obtaining a radio license and using it to build his own amateur radio station from his bedroom, as well as make and sell walkie-talkies. So he was an entrepreneur from the start. His interest in engineering led him to enroll in Queens College, and in the 1970s, he became a part of the Silicon Valley Homebrew Computer Club, of which he was the only Black member at the time. In his career, he was the first black video game engineer and designer. He spearheaded the Fairchild Channel F Video Game Council, designed and produced the Demolition Derby arcade game, and was head of VideoSoft game developers. Gerald Lawson. Today's tech topic is intellectual property within the tech space. With the current flurry of patent buying and selling activity in the global tech sector, it really demonstrates the dramatic changes in the way some of the biggest technology companies are approaching their intellectual property. Companies that usually have little to no internal IP have been rapidly buying patent portfolios to fend off potential lawsuits. Technology is always advancing, right? We all know that. And um, typically because this is consumer driven um, and these companies recognize that in order to stay competitive, they've got to innovate. This means that they have to invest a lot of money in research and development. So with that, companies understand that with all of that money poured into R&D, they got to protect their intellectual property. Understanding and dedicating resources to IP protection is absolutely essential to monetizing your own innovation. In fact, it's the fastest way to lose your competitive edge is by allowing others to capitalize on your ideas. So here are some tips for those in the tech space that are wondering how to protect their IP. So for starters, you have to patent what may be important to your competitors or customers in the future, not just what matters to you and your competitors right now. So be forward thinking. Also, work with an attorney who specializes in intellectual property. If you're in the middle of building up a team, you may want to consider hiring a chief intellectual property officer. You should investigate inter international patents if you or your competitors do business globally. Um, another tip is to file for patents quickly, right? Because just like anything in the startup space, um, being first matters. Um, so be quick with it. And uh, the last tip is set up a rigid IP management internal process to ensure that all patent registrations, monitoring, and approvals are handled in compliance with law requirements. So you can keep those patents. Earlier, I had the opportunity to interview Tracy Thomas, CEO of IP Zone, which was a real treat. 
he called in from New York City to share some of his insights on the intellectual property sector. He shared advice to those with new startups, and he also dived into some of the biggest mistakes he's witnessed while working with startups. So let's listen in. Today, we have an amazing guest with us, IP strategist and CEO of IP Zone, Tracy Thomas. Tracy has been named one of the world's leading IP strategists by, by I Am Magazine from 2015 to 2018. And he's a named inventor over 50 issued US patents. So we're really excited to learn from Mr. Thomas today. But before we dive in, Tracy, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm originally from Milwaukee. Um, I grew up uh, in the city, um, uh, attended high school at Riverside High School, uh, went to Marquette University after that. I worked for four years in Milwaukee as an engineer, first as a distribution engineer or power engineer at Wisconsin Electric Power, then as a software engineer for a brief period at a company called Bear Automotive. In 2000, I left there and I went to American Express as the first patent counsel um, that the company had ever hired. Um, I was responsible for patent prosecution, patent and trademark prosecution, um, and litigation. Um, I worked in the general counsel's office for six years, um, and uh, we developed a, a, a little niche business, licensing intellectual property, American Express's intellectual property. So we set up a business outside of the general counsel's office around 2006, um, where we basically licensed and sold American Express intellectual property. We then developed a second business um, where we would help other companies do the same thing. Um, and that business was called the IP Zone, which was created around 2007. After 10 years inside of American Express, we spun that company out um, in 2017. Uh, and I became the CEO of that standalone company. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to stop you right there because we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I thought it was awesome uh, to hear that you're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so you've obviously uh, done very well thus far in your career and you make us Milwaukeeans really proud. Um, and I thought it was great to hear that you're also um, an alumni of Madison, right? So you received your law degree from UW-Madison. Can you share maybe a favorite memory of your college life? Um, college years um, probably center centered around um, just, um, you know, my engineering studies, um, mm -hmm. it was very new for, for me. Um, I can't say I was the most prepared student coming, um, into that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a, a learning curve. Uh, but once I got it, I really, um, I really learned to love my engineering and science courses. Um, I also participated on the Marquette University track team, um, and uh, I ran uh, the 100 meters and the 60, 60 meter dashes. Mm -hmm. I'm number two all time uh, in both of those, you know, not number one, number two all time in both of those events. And I think my years on the track team um, probably carry some of my best memories. I also met my, my future wife. Um, at Marquette. So certainly, certainly that was among the highlights. Awesome. So what made you decide to get your law degree then? Uh, after four years of being an, a software engineer, um, I felt like I had, you know, really kind of peaked, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. I didn't. I don't think that I was meant to be a software engineer for my entire life. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people who are a lot better at it than me, mm -hmm. and I was always intrigued by the prospect of um, uh, having a law career. And uh, I can say it was a, a great decision. At the time, I was a little unsure. Um, I was doing, you know, relatively well in my engineering career. Uh, but going to law school certainly put me on a different trajectory in terms of, you know, what I would be doing and some of the opportunities I would have. I would certainly say that going to law school expanded my opportunities. Awesome. So you were sharing earlier that your chief executive officer officer of IP Zone. So tell us a little bit more about what IP Zone is. Yeah. Um, well, it started um, inside of American Express um, uh, as, as an idea, as most things do, um, around how we could sell and license more American Express intellectual property. And the idea was to create an ecosystem um, of companies um, that would educate themselves around intellectual property, uh, that would conduct transactions around intellectual property, and that would that would speak the same language, right? Um, mm -hmm. In terms of um, intellectual property, in, intellectual property transactions and deals, and so it it, it uh, initially was created with three components. There was a platform mm -hmm. component for buying and selling intellectual property. Um, there was an education component. Uh, to make sure that everybody was on the same page and speaking the same language. What is a patent, for example? Um, what is licensing? Um, and uh, that may be a bit pedantic, but um, we even went so far as to say, what would a standard patent license agreement look like, right? And there are a lot of groups that do that type of thing now. And then uh, the last piece was, um, how, do we, how do we integrate new ideas or help integrate new ideas mm -hmm. into large companies so we, the third component was a, an incubator that would focus on IP-rich companies. Um, okay. As it has evolved, um, right now we focus on those last two pieces primarily. Um, one, helping startups um, uh, actually take advantage of their intellectual property um, mm -hmm. at, at its basic uh, core, helping them to monetize that intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And then we also educate um, companies and individuals about intellectual property. So now when you say startups, do you mean like someone who just has a brilliant idea and just filed an LLC or is it more established startups? Um, so, so we do have criteria, right? We don't, we don't try to be so narrow that we would eliminate, you know, any, 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 you know, t one person or any, you know, idea or group, but we do have certain criteria. So for example, we look for ideas that have already been licensed, for example. So if someone comes to us and they say, you know, we are, we've licensed this intellectual property and now we're in a dispute with, you know, and, and this is just by way of example. Now we're in a dispute with this other company that could be a competitor. They don't want to pay the licensing fees mm -hmm. anymore. Um, we look for situations where there is already some momentum. Um, it could be it could be um, uh, a license, as, as I've said. It could be litigation that was successful um, involving the intellectual property or usually patents. It could be um, a situation where they have leading technology so so maybe they don't have developed intellectual property yet um, mm -hmm. but they've got technology um, that is state-of-the-art 
So um, there, there is no, we're not very, you know, narrow about how we choose our clients, but we do look to see if there's value um, that's already mm-hmm. been created because it's easier to work, to work from, from that. And so how do you determine what's valuable? Um, the simplest way is, is there revenue coming in, right? Like okay. in, in the intellectual property space, um, uh, particularly with patents, which, which mm-hmm. we primarily focus on, um, it's very difficult to value patents, right? Um, because by their nature, patents are unique assets, right? So there's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not like a car where you can say, well, you know, this, um, uh, Honda is, you know, um, probably worth the same amount as another Honda, um, car that sold for X dollars last year, right? You can't do that with patents, right? So market comparisons right. are very tough. Um, and then you can go to the other end and look to see if there's revenue associated with the patents, right? And, and that's what, that's the kind of thing we look for, right? I mentioned we look right. to see if it's already licensed. Because when you have income associated with the patents, you can then um, back into evaluation, right? Um, and so oftentimes, um, the more accurate valuations or realistic valuations center around licensing revenue, right? And sometimes you have to, you have to do the hard work of you know, making projections around the patent, taking a look at what mm-hmm. exactly the patents cover, being very realistic about mm-hmm. how strong they are, about mm-hmm. the, the weaknesses and the strengths, mm-hmm. looking at the marketplace, right? Is it, a, right? is it an already developed market with players who are, you know, saturated. Y- yeah, exactly. Or is it a, a developing marketplace, right? Um, and, and we look for um, kind of the, um, you know, uh, the perfect storm. Um, great patents, great technology, emerging marketplace. There's not other people who've established their patents in the space. Um, early filing dates with patents help, right? It's better to mm-hmm. be, it's better to be first, right? And, right? and by their nature, you have to be first. But right. It's better to be very early um, and first. Okay, so maybe let's get back to basics for those that don't know. How would you define what intellectual property actually is? That's a good question. Um, I tend to um, try to look at intellectual property at creations of the mind, as creations of the mind, right? Um, and because they're creations of the mind, um, some people will um, give them less value than things that are tangible, right? Because if it's a creation of the mind, it's it's typically an intangible, right? Mm-hmm. I try to look at them uh, just as I would a building. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I had a building that was very valuable, I wouldn't let it sit there and waste. Right. I would try to extract value. How? Renting it. Mm-hmm. Right. Selling it, leasing it, um, uh, even in destroying it and taking a, a tax deduction. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the building loses its value. Um, same thing with patents um, and other creations of the mind. I see them the same way. Right. Even though they're um, you can't see them or, or necessarily touch them, that doesn't make them any less real. Now, in order for them to have value, they have to be protected um, and typically protected pretty well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find that there are certain characteristics of, of valuable intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So in the case of patents, um, sometimes you hear people refer to cornerstone patents, okay. right? Um, and these, these might be patents that um, were very early um, in the race to develop a particular technology or idea, 
um, you'll see that a lot of players mm-hmm. are in the space, um, working and developing in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and those types of creations of the mind mm-hmm. um, will tend to have more value than others that are just kind of pie in the sky dreams. Now, that's not to say that you know ideas that are futuristic have less value Mm -hmm. it's just hard harder to put a value around that intellectual property right if it's too future looking got it got it so in our earlier episode on down to mars we were talking about the difference between transformative innovations and disruptive innovations transformative innovations being um, transforming a certain profit process in the industry a standard process optimizing it making it more uh, making it better or improving the process, whereas disruptive innovation is more creating a new market and value network and eventually disrupting an exe- existing market, right? So which one yeah. of what you see is more value-based? Well, I- I'll certainly say, as you just defined it, um, you find, um, you probably find more transformative mm-hmm. inventions, if I'm following your 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 definition, um, uh, most inventions are incremental improvements, okay. right? They're, they're typically not, you know, totally new disruptive concepts. Okay. For example, the, a real obvious one would be Uber, right? right? Um, and how it really disrupted the entire, you know, kind of marketplace. Um, yeah. Yeah. Entire marketplace in, in that industry. Um, you see some of that happening, you know, mm-hmm. well, that happened also in the payments business. Right. Um, with the advent of the internet right. and online payments, right? right? right. Like, you know, prior to you know nineteen, the, you know the late nineteen nineties, no one paid, you know, on the internet, right? right? Now online payments are as big or bigger than offline payments, right. right? So, so some things are are disruptive, but those tend to be rarer. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't have tremendous value. And and the example I, I like to use with people uh, is a very simple one. Mm-hmm. Um, um, take a pencil, for example, right? Mm-hmm. A pencil is a very valuable um, instrument. Um, but a pencil with an eraser, right, mm-hmm. which is really an incremental improvement, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not disruptive in any real sense, right? Mm-hmm. But a pencil with an eraser is still much more valuable than a plain pencil or writing instrument alone, right? right? So even incremental um, inventions can have tremendous value. The disruptive one. ones tend to get more, yeah, the disruptive ones tend to get more attention because they're very sexy. Right. Oftentimes they lead to, you know, big IPOs right, right. And, um, and flashy, you know, um, uh, business statements, business and income statements, balance sheets. But at the end of the day, um, even, even what might be perceived as small incremental improvements can be very valuable. Got it. Got it. And so when I think of Uber, right, um, I, I kind of question, like, how does the patent play a role, patenting process play a role in a company like Uber, especially since there's Lyft, right? So what exactly did they patent if people can recreate the app, basically? It's a good question. Now, I'm I'm not familiar with Uber's patents and what they developed mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, at, at its core, a business process yeah. or a different way of doing business, right. which um, uh, prior um, to um, a case called State Street Bank, um, they were not patentable. Mm-hmm. Um, so prior to 1998, technically, you couldn't pr- business process, right? And I say technically because 
people found ways around that limitation. Um, business patents, business process patents were very prevalent between 2000 and 2012, but then the America Invents Act got passed. Um, and then there was a case called um, the Alice uh, case um, mm -hmm. where um, uh, essentially two things happened. One, um, business processes were singled out as problematic mm -hmm. um, and special defenses um, were legislated around business processes, right? <laughs> so, so decided to enforce a, a business process patent against someone, there are special okay. defenses that people could use to take down those patents. And then um, the Alice case um, basically um, did much of the same, right? It, it made certain types of patents harder to obtain and also harder to enforce. Um, and so, so when you talk about a company like Uber, they can have intellectual property, right? And, and, and I'm certain right. they have a lot of it around the logistics of mm -hmm. how they connect all of these um, operators, right? These um, people who transport people mm -hmm. um, to passengers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's probably a lot of intellectual property there. Some of it's patented. Maybe some of it's probably also protected, you know, via trade secret or just through their confidential proprietary processes. Got it. So um, just because you don't see a patent doesn't mean there's no intellectual property. People tend to associate IP a lot of times with patents in particular. Yeah. But um, I'm sure they have a lot of valuable intellectual property. The same would be said of a company like Amazon. Right. Right. Um, I'm, in terms of the their logistics um, operations. Um, there's probably a considerable amount. I know there's a considerable amount of intellectual property. Some of it they probably keep proprietary um, mm -hmm. and smartly so. Okay, okay. So that helps me sort of uh, sort of conceptualize exactly how Uber, the Uber model works, right? Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, a lot of my, my listeners, a lot of followers of Down to Mars and um, just folks that uh, come into Jet Constellations are always asking, you know, what are the first steps uh, when it comes to building up a, a startup, right? So what advice can you give someone who has a brilliant idea and wants to launch a startup? So they're going through their, uh, their different phases, creating a business plan, building out a team, hiring employees, filing an LLC. What sort of advice could you give to someone in, um, in that space? Um. You know, not necessarily in this order, but certainly very important is really looking at the value proposition you're offering, right? Mm -hmm. um, I tend to look at things through an intellectual property lens. And intellectual property is only, you know, one aspect of, you know, having or creating a successful business, right? Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times, as you just mentioned, you know, businesses start with ideas, and I think really focusing in on what is the value proposition to the ultimate customer, okay? Uh, um, and, and making sure that it is a real value proposition, right? Vetting it with people um, who might be in the industry, doing the research to make sure that you're not re, you know, reinventing the wheel, mm -hmm. um, and um, looking to see you know, what type of opportunities will even surround that value proposition, right? So you take a company like Amazon, and, and we might see that company as, um, oh, they help, you to, they help you to buy stuff. Whereas at their core, um, you know, they might look at themselves and say, well, we're really a logistics business, right? 
um, helping helping deliver, you know, um, you know, a package from A to Z. So they may see themselves less as, a, um, you know, a company that facilitates buying and selling and more about a company that facilitates delivering a product from A to B. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so being very honest um, and thorough about what that value proposition is. So that that would be the first step, you okay. know, in, in my estimation. Got and it. then um, developing a plan. Right. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing I know about plans, um, in any type of plans, they have to be flexible. Right. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the more detailed you are. Right. Um, right. The more the more goal goal oriented you are. Um, I believe that you. Um, you, you, you reduce the risk associated with moving forward with that plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you certainly need to be flexible, right? And you need to be ready to um, modify that plan and sometimes to anticipate you right. know, um, um, uh, needed adjustments in that plan. Because if you don't have that flexibility, mm -hmm. um, you may box yourself into a corner, right? Mm -hmm. And then because I'm intellectual property focused, I'm always looking at clients and saying, how can I help you protect the value proposition that you identified for me. So that's why I, where I start. Um, when I talk to a new startup, I ask them, what is your value proposition for your customers, for your partners, right? Mm -hmm. um, for, um, you know, the people that will work with you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and we start from that because if you don't have a, a basic important value proposition, then the intellectual property um, two things will happen. One, you, you won't target the intellectual property protection correctly. Right. Um, if you go back to the pencil and eraser example, right. if you don't identify the importance of the eraser, um, you, you won't focus on how to protect it properly. Right. And you could miss it totally. Right. And mm -hmm. just focus it on it as a piece of rubber as opposed to as opposed to something which actually makes the writing process substantially easier. Right. By virtue right. of being able to go back and correct things. Um, and that's the same way with any idea, right? Identifying what that value is and protecting it, and then looking for ways um, uh, to help that startup um, leverage that intellectual property, right? It could be mm -hmm. it could be for money, right? Mm -hmm. Just very plain and simple. A right. lot of startups need money, money here, yeah. and sometimes you may need to sue someone, right? Now, okay. I'm not an advocate of taking bad patents and going to sue people. But I am certainly not an apologist when someone does have a a a, a very good patent um, mm -hmm. that they have um, that they have earned and developed. And if there are people out there violating the patent, you have a constitutional right to go out mm -hmm. and prevent them from making, using, and selling the idea covered by that patent. Right. So it's not something mm -hmm. they would need to apologize about, and it's not something that you can be shy about. Right. You really have to to be aggressive because my experience is that um, uh, larger companies um, really only listen to smaller companies. Um, if there's a real resonance between what the smaller company is doing and the larger company's needs. Right. Mm -hmm. And then number two, if the smaller company or smaller entity has patents and, right. and um, can create substantial risk for the larger company. Right. So mm -hmm. we, we look at companies, startups, and we say, how can we take that, that intellectual property and help you again? One way is creating uh, generating revenue. And then the other way is using the patent strategically to help advance the business goals. That requires a lot of creativity. It requires mm -hmm. a lot of work um, mm -hmm. and, a, and a lot of coordination with the client, really understanding 
their idea, their value proposition, and their plans. Okay, so let's see if I can summarize. You need a value proposition, solidify your value proposition, make yep. sure that you have a solid plan, detailed enough, but also flexible, and then make sure that you're protecting your intellectual property. That's right. That's Got right. It. Got it. Okay. So you obviously have a lot of experience in the startup space, right? Yes. So what's one of the biggest mistakes that you've witnessed folks make in the tech startup space? Um, and I, I can't say it's a single mistake um, okay. or, or the biggest mistake, but where I see people stumble um, is when they build their team, right? Um, and, you know, really good inventors, um, uh, you know, oftentimes um, one of their strengths is, um, you know, that they're, they're very creative. Um, a lot of times they're, you know, they've had to be the salesperson around their idea. They've had to be the designer around the idea and the business marketer. But that doesn't mean that they're the best person to do that, to, to do some of that stuff going forward. Right. And a creator, or the, the creator or founder of a company typically has um, an important place, particularly when an idea is being you know, first developed. Right. Mm -hmm. But picking a team um, that has those other strengths. Right. Team members mm -hmm. have those other strengths. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the marketing piece. Um, is very critical, even at an early stage, right, um, uh, to raise funds. For example, um, a technical person or a person with a technical background, and I throw myself into that group, so I'm not criticizing inventors, okay. oftentimes may not be the best person to communicate a business value proposition and certainly may not be the best person to talk the language that an investor might understand. Yeah. Even on the other side, um, if you go further down in the process and you're talking about selling to customers, a lot of times um, you'll find that there's a, a startup where on the one side you have this very technical founder and on the other side you have um, a business person who wants to buy, right? Who's interested okay. in technology, but wants to buy. But sometimes something gets lost in translation, right? Between the technical person, this inventor or founder, um, mm -hmm. this very creative um, you know, hard driving person and then a business person who's trying to satisfy some, you know, some business bills. So so I think one of the things I would stress is the importance of picking a team and for a founder, um, uh, you know, company founders to recognize, um, you know, what some of their not necessarily weaknesses are, but where they could um, where they could use help, you know, places where they could use help and where experience will will help them. Right. So I wanted to wrap up with some lighter questions, okay? Sure. So, you know, we're in the era of the side hustle, right? Yes. Okay. Do you have a side hustle? I, I certainly have a side hustle. And as much time as I spend on it, it's probably less of a side hustle than you might, um, <laughs> than, you, than what you might call a side hustle. Okay. I, I have a real estate business um, in okay. the Dominican Republic. So I own villas um, uh, on the north coast of the Dominican Republic, um, and I rent those villas out. And we also have a, a management company where we manage um, rentals for other um, other folks. And we're looking to expand that business to include um, restaurants um, and some other ideas that we're contemplating. So, Trey, what do you think about millennials having side hustles, even though they have their maybe corporate jobs? Is it responsible? Is it something that you would recommend? Is it beneficial for, you know, their future career? 
Yeah, I'm the la- I would be the last person to tell someone not to pursue their, their side hustle um, because oftentimes or many times the side hustle is something that is actually um, attractive to that person, right? It's an area that they might be interested in and ultimately it can become the full-time job. What I will say though is that um, if you are in corporate America, um, you want to make sure that the side hustle doesn't eat into the time that you need to be your best at that corporate job uh, because a lot of the skills, most of the skills that I have learned, which helped me now um, as I run an independent entity um, and even with my side hustle, the management skills I, skills I came from working at American Express and other companies, right? And watching um, and learning from, from other leaders, right? Who um, uh, taught me invaluable things about how to manage, mm-hmm. how to lead people, how to mm-hmm. make mistakes, how to admit you're wrong, how, right. how to pivot, right? So I would say um, uh, definitely pursue the side hustle, especially if it's something that's very interesting to you, but be be honest about whether or not um, you can do both, right? And do both well, right? Right, right. And I think that that's one of the main things that I've learned, because uh, I'm a serial side hustler, a serial entrepreneur, is being honest with myself and knowing, okay, do I actually have the time you pursue, you know, further education, uh, maybe, you know, an extra business on the side and this really large corporate job. So just having that, you know, talk with yourself, I think is so important and just be realistic, right? Yeah, uh, be realistic and also prioritize, right? So, so you may not be able to do everything you want right now, but um, what I find is if I pri- prioritize, right? And I say, you know what? These three things are, and it may not be three, but I'm just saying, mm-hmm. these three things are the most important thing. Yep. And then really focus your time in and learn and learning how to say no, right? Um, right. Every bright, shiny object shouldn't necessarily be pursued. Um, right. Or maybe the timing isn't right for it, right? right. So, so sometimes I will turn down projects um, that, that, could, that really look good, but that when I look at my priorities, I really don't have the time for it. Right. right. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing I've learned is that, um, you know, you certainly don't want to pass up, you know, uh, yeah, a, 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 a real opportunity that could turn out to be, you know, life changing, of course. But right. learning to say no, um, uh, I found that opportunities still present themselves down the road. Right. So prioritizing is important. All right. Last question for you. So what are you looking forward to seeing in 2019? Um, so personally, I'm, I'm setting my goals for the year. Um, and I started that process toward the end of the year last year. I learned that working at American Express, um, kind of looking back at, at what worked and what didn't work, um, looking at the various projects that we're working on, um, and then, and then doing that prioritization and setting realistic goals, right? Um, and and then moving toward those goals. So that's that's on a you know a, a personal or, or business level. Um, in my industry, in in terms of what we're looking at um, right now, what we're seeing is that there is a lot of funding um, available um, around intellectual property. Some of it is around um, litigation funding. So there's a lot of capital and a lot of companies 
that have a lot of money that they can dedicate toward litigation funding opportunities, right? But then also around um, uh, commercializing and, and, and leveraging intellectual property. So it goes beyond just lawsuits, right? And legal mm -hmm. entanglements. Um, and so we see a real opportunity there. And, and, you know, from our perspective, that's important to us. So we're focused on that. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to see what, what this year brings in that regard. Awesome. Awesome. Are there any handles or websites that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, you know, or your book, you have a book, right? Uh, yeah, I, well, that book is so old. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't think, it's, I don't think it's worth talking about. Um, okay. But you know what? I, I, I cheat. I get most of my information from, from the network of people that I deal with. Right. Okay. So I have people, um, you know, friends and colleagues and former partners who, you know, send me information constantly and, and they help synthesize that information. Um, LinkedIn is a big source of, you know, where I get my information from um, communicating with um, uh, people I know on LinkedIn um, yeah. and also sharing ideas um, and opportunities. So I really you know, I, you know, there are publications I read. So I read The Economist. I read The New York Times, um, mostly for entertainment purposes, but uh, with respect to the latter. But most of my information around my industry, I tend to get from from my peers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Trey, for your time. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners did. too. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tracy Thomas, a true powerhouse in the IP sector. That's all we have for you today. As always, give us a follow on our Instagram and Facebook pages, Jack Constellations and Down to Mars Podcast. Down to Mars Podcast functions as a platform for Jack Constellations Milky Way Initiative to rebrand Milwaukee as the Milky Way Tech Hub, a tech hub that thrives on diversity. If you are interested in supporting diversity in tech, please donate by visiting our website, downtomarsmke.com. Happy Black History Month, y'all.